So I'm very excited to be here tonight. First time preaching. I don't know if it's that or the coffee I just drank, but uh, anyway, uh, tonight uh, the lesson is going to be on get ready, be prepared, run the race, and finish strong. Can we get the slide, please. So the uh, I introduced myself. I'm Jim Hayes. Um, most of y'all know me. As I said, I'm a shepherd here. I'm husband. To my wife, uh, Brandy, I got three uh, young uh, men as sons. And um, basically, when I thought about this lesson, uh, I thought about the Apostle Paul and the race. And that, that kind of motivated me. The other thing I thought is when I'd been reading through about the, the ten parables of the, the ten bridesmaids, and it talked about uh, some of them not being prepared. And I thought to myself, Am I prepared? Am I prepared enough? How do I get prepared? And then the, finally, I factored in the audience here that we have tonight on Wednesday night. Um, mature, devout, you know, well-read Bible, uh, Bible believers. And I felt led to challenge this congregation. We can always improve our Christian walk. So be prepared for some poor attempt at wit, some history, the possibility, since I was a fighter pilot, talking with my hands, I'll try not to do that, and plenty of football comparisons. So, speaking of football comparisons, am I the only one that just recognizes what an awesome staff we have here? So, you got Pastor Rick, Joe Montana, Les as uh, head coach Bill Walsh, and Jake as uh, Jerry Rice. So, the other staff where we got a, a full all-pro team. And if anybody can remember, my kind of role was the, uh, the placeholder for the kicker on the 1985 championship team. Anybody remember his name? No? Okay. Well, we all have our roles to play in the body of Christ. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so tonight, the objectives that we're going to have is how do I enter the race? What are the parameters of the race? How do I prepare for the race? How do I successfully run the race? What are characteristics and examples of those who finished strong and those who didn't? And what are the rewards? So let's uh, take a look in the Bible uh, and read through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to the body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." So a little bit of background, uh, as Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, this, the city hosted uh, what they called the Isthmus Games. And this was second only to the Olympics that they had in Athens. This was held the year before the Olympic events that we're all familiar with and the year after the Olympic events. So the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, they would have been very familiar having these athletes come in and gather and train and, and then also compete. So they were very familiar with 
the, what Paul is going to talk about here. Paul writes to the church, and after getting a glance at heaven 14 years earlier that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he witnesses uh, what heaven looks like and what is in store for, for us, and that nothing on earth compares. He lets go of his rights and privileges as a believer for the race that he wants to win. Let's talk about getting into the race. Run the race is quoted by Paul as this is not a call to salvation. This is a call to encouragement and motivation to other Christian believers, brothers and sisters, to finish strong in our Christian walk. Far too often we as believers settle on the milk and we don't advance to solid food. I think this also is indicative across our country, how we just settle on milk and we don't advance into eating solid food, God's wisdom. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, and his great sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. His sacrifice gives us complete atonement for our sins. This is the good news of grace and salvation given to those who repent and believe. I want to be clear on this point. Man has contributed nothing towards his salvation, least any man can boast, Ephesians 2.9. So our salvation was paid for by the blood of the Lamb. Our salvation is the opportunity, the ticket, if you will, to run the race. You didn't buy that ticket. It was given to you. The race is a journey through sanctification. The more you progress through the race, the more you become like Christ. Furthermore, there's always room for improvement. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I believe this verse is meant to motivate us. Let's face it, human nature is, becomes complacent. We need to be motivated. So anytime we get into a race, we need to know kind of what the parameters of the race are. You know, where's the start? Where's the finish line? How long are we running? Is there a time limit? God knows all this, the day and the hour, whether it's the distance, be at the end of one's life in Job chapter 14, verse five, since his days are determined or the time being the rapture of the church, which the timing is also set by God. In Matthew 24, 36 tells us, but of that day and, time, and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Furthermore, you cannot alter the parameters of the race. Matthew 26, uh, verse 7, or Matthew 6, excuse me, verse 27, and which of you, being anxious, can add one single hour to the span of his life? So we can't change the parameters of the race. Matthew 10, 30, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So two quick points in this race. Every believer is going to finish the race. And the second one is we have our own personal trainer, the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, the helper. So as far as finishing the race, many Christians, excuse me, as Christians, we are saved. John chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has been given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and the father are one. 
And the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring you to uh, remembrance of all that I said. It also talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 15, verse 26, and John 16, verse 7. Isaiah 40, 31, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So we're not in this alone. We have the helper encouraging us along the race. As runners, we need to be focused on the finish line. The finish line is Christ's return. We need to be focused on Christ. Matthew 24, verse 42 through 44. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understanding this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. In Matthew 24, verse 37, But as the days of Noah are, or were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In Luke 21, verse 36, be alert at all times. Pray so that you have the power to escape everything that is, going, that is about to happen and to stand in front of the Son of Man. In a race, we need to be prepared. Part of that is equipping. As with any competition, you need to be, have the adequate gear on. I love the game of football. However, if I were to go out and run a track event, 100 meters, I wouldn't want to have all that football gear on. It would just be a lot of extra weight and extra drag. Often the worries of this life and distractions become extra weight. We need to give all those over to the Lord. Conversely, if you were going to step onto the football field, you wouldn't want to come on with your short shorts and track shoes. You're going to get hurt really bad. So the Lord tells us, uh, also gives us a list of spiritual equipment uh, in putting on the armor of God. In Ephesians 6.11, we put on the armor of God so that you can fight against the devil's evil tricks. In Ephesians 6.13, therefore put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Ephesians and verse 17, put on the salvation as your helmet and take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Additional equipment, consider the parable of the ten virgins, uh, bridesmaids. In Matthew 25, verse 1 through 13, they took their lamps, they went to meet the bridegroom, but five were, were foolish, and the Bible tells us five were prudent. The five foolish ones had no oil, and they were told by the groom, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So question, what was the oil? It was the Holy Spirit, and it was all the difference. Some great, great quotes on being prepared. This one by Benjamin Franklin. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. If you call yourself a Christian, but live in a continuous lifestyle of sin, you are not prepared. By Charles Spurgeon. Depend on it, my hearer. You never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. For training, verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. 
get to the next slide. We're talking about the intense training described by Paul. Anyone who's got into or watched documentaries on professional uh, athletes, whether it be professional bodybuilders, crossfitters, Olympians, Ironmans, knows it's a full-time job. There's a, tr a tremendous amount of time and dedication put into transforming the body into a well-tuned machine. As a youth, I used to admire this guy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, seven-time Olympian. He would train six days a week, twice a day, two to three hour uh, periods that he would work out. So why am I telling you this? How does that relate? Well, what kind of shape is your spirit? How much time and training do you give your spirit? Although the Bible tells us to take care of the body, it's the temple, uh, what's more important, the spirit or the flesh? I know what Les would say. As Christians, we train by staying in God's word, the Bible, and having an active prayer life. Billy Graham was once asked, if you had three years to live, how would you spend those last three years? He said, I'd spend two years studying the Bible and one year preaching. This is coming from a man who spent his lifetime studying God's word. Mastering the flesh. One of the best tools for mastering the flesh, and it's biblical, is fasting. Now, I think this is often not used very frequently. Um, Jesus, uh, if you reference um, Matthew 4, verse uh, 1 through 11, and also in Luke chapter 4, he spends 40 days in the desert fasting in the wilderness. Fasting is a tool that spiritually toughens, toughens you up. It lets the body know who's in control, that the spirit is in control. Jesus also tells us when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. In verse 27, Paul says, I keep my body under. I will not allow my body to determine me. You see, we have, when we are not saved, there's three parts of us. We have the flesh, we have the soul, and we have the spirit. Once we become saved, the hierarchy is switched. We have the spirit, the soul, and then the body, the flesh. The flesh doesn't like staying in the basement. It constantly wants to take control. So it's a daily fight. How long has it been since you've said no to your stomach? When saying no to the physical, use that time to pray and to worship the Lord. By saying no to the stomach, it makes it easier to say no to sensual temptations. Isaiah 58, 6. Is this not the fast which I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness? After we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, our spirit is transformed, made new. However, as I said, we, are, we still have that same flesh. I'm a new, I'm a Christian, but I'm still, the flesh is still the same old Jim. The Bible teaches us of the war between the, the spirit and the flesh. In Galatians 5, chapter 6, uh, excuse me, Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh set its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Paul warns us in Romans about this battle. In Romans 8, Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's an old 
Native American parable about a man who owned two wolves. One was good, one was evil. And every day those wolves would battle, they would fight. Do you know which one would win? The one the man would feed. In the same way in our own personal lives, you have a choice. Do you give in to the fleshly desire and feed the evil wolf? Or do you then submit to the Father above and feed the Spirit? In verse 24, we want to run to win. Do you know that those who run in a race, but only one receives the prize? So now you're thinking, okay, so only one receives the prize. Well, Paul's doing laps around me. Les has done laps around me. You know, I don't have a prayer in this, okay? But we're not competing against Paul. You're not competing against Jake. You're not competing against Les or other brothers and sisters. Thank goodness, because in my own household, my wife does laps around me. You're competing against yourself with the gifts and talents God has given you. Remember Jesus telling the parable of the 10 talents in Matthew 25. Uh, it also is talked about in Luke 19. Are your talents developed and used for his glory? Are you laying down your rights to win others to Christ? The parable I'll read in uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. For it is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to a, another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded them and, gave, and, uh, and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more but the one who received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now a long time the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted, me, uh, you entrusted five talents to me, so I have gained you five uh, talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into, my, uh, enter into the joy of your master. So the th same thing replies for the one who had two. He gets two more. And so his master's happy with him. And the one who received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew uh, you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, see what is yours. But the master had answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put, put the money in the bank. On arrival, I would have received the money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance but from the one who does not have, even that that he does not have shall be taken away. This is scary. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Hebrews 12, chapter, uh, Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every incumbents, 
and sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We need to fight the good fight, as Timothy talks about. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you will and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we need to get into the fight. So fight the good fight, get in the fight. One of the things that uh, I kind of think about when I was, um, I used to fly over here at Whidbey for five years, uh, the Growler. And anyway, I would take students up and we would do, one of my favorite hops was doing a, uh, it's called 2v1 section engage maneuvering. So it was two aircraft against uh, one bad guy. The bad guy was, we'd call him the bandit. And if we worked as a team, it should be a fairly simple, pretty easy to kill the bandit. But inevitably, with these young students that I would get, I'd get down and I'd be fighting with the, uh, the bandit and I would look up and 10,000 feet above the, the fight, I'd have an aircraft just circling over, just kind of watching, hey, good luck down there. And it would just make me so angry because it's like, get into the fight. So I'd really have to get on the students to, to do that. So in the same way in our lives, get into the fight. Apostle Paul also talks about don't get disqualified. So after I have preached to others, I myself not be disqualified. Paul's concern is to win uh, men's souls. You can't become disqualified if you don't keep control of your body. It can become a stumbling block. In other words, if I indulge in the flesh, I can trip up another believer or non-believer. In the 1984 uh, Olympics that were in LA, the women's 1500 meter race, there was a woman named Zola Budd from South Africa. At the start when the gun went off, she knocked over a, uh, one of the other ladies, Mary Decker, knocked her to the ground uh, at the start. Zola Budd went on to finish first place in the 1500 meter uh, race. To her surprise, officials came up to her after the race and told her she'd been disqualified. So we need to be careful that we set the right example. We don't want to become stumbling blocks for others in our race. The Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, and 22, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. In verse 22, I have become all things to all men so that, so that I may be uh, by all means save some. Let's talk about uh, characteristics of some people who finish strong. Um, some of those who finish strong, perseverance, focus, and faith. Those are some of the attributes that come to mind of people who finish strong. Secondly, we'll also take a look at some people who didn't finish strong. Perseverance, when I think of the story of uh, Looney, uh, excuse me, Louis Zapparini, you can see his picture up there. They made a movie about him in 2014, and then there was a sequel in 2018 uh, about this man. If y'all haven't read the book or, or seen the movie, it's a fantastic story that demonstrates perseverance, grace, and forgiveness. It's an interesting uh, story about a World War II um, Army airman who was captured by the Japanese. He was also, before the war, was a uh, medium distance runner. He competed in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. He didn't win the race, but he set the fastest uh, single lap time in the 5K. 
He was uh, flying B-24s in the Pacific uh, Theater, and on one of the uh, rescue missions, he, uh, the air crew started to, the airplane started to lose uh, engines. So they wind up ditching in the Pacific Ocean, somewhere between Hawaii and Australia. That crew, that aircraft had 10 people on board. Only three of them made it out of the aircraft and were on life rafts. And then for 47 days, they were in a raft at sea, which also set a record at the time. Um, only two actually, two out of the three survived in the life raft. Unfortunately for, uh, for Louie and, and the other guy, they were captured by the Japanese. All they had on that life raft were a few ounces of water, some chocolate bars, and a couple of, uh, you know, some, some, a kit to basically fish with. Um, so anyway, it's a great story. Uh, as I mentioned, unfortunately, he was captured by the Japanese, spent two years in a prison of war camp where he was brutally beaten, often by, uh, uh, brutally beaten by the prison guards. After the war, he comes back to America. Uh, he, gets, he marries a beautiful woman named Sissy. They have two children. But he struggled with PTSD, as you can imagine, and alcoholism until he attended the second day of a Billy Graham uh, revival. Once he gave his heart to Jesus, he was able to forgive and put the past behind him. Louis had suffered from nightmares from the beating he had received, but the grace and peace received from Jesus, he suffered no more. He literally talks about it completely went away. Louis was even, uh, Annie gave the alcohol away. Louis was even spirit-led to go to Japan years after the war to meet with his captors. So many of his captors could not understand how Louis could forgive them. Only Jesus Christ could make this possible. There's so much, again, to the story of endurance and perseverance, but to me the biggest part of the story was the will to continue during tremendous adversity and what the power of Christ can give and take away from a broken man and give him the power to forgive. Louis finished strong. The second person that I thought of was uh, someone from the Bible who overcame many setbacks and distractions during his race, and that's the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 and 50. As many of y'all know, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. He was envied by or hated by 10 of 11 of his brothers. He once dreamed that his brothers, even his mom and dad, would bow down to him. This didn't go over very well, and he was thrown into a pit, later sold into slavery. He became the highest servant of the house of Potiphar. Joseph tells us he was trusted so much that only Potiphar's wife was withheld from him. Day after day, Potiphar's wife would come and make sexual advances towards Joseph. Joseph, a man of God, refused each time. In Genesis 39, verse 9, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph knew that this was a great sin. The decision he makes is often one we make in our own lives while struggling against sin. It separates Christians who finish strong from Christians who finish so snow, who get entangled with sin. Be on your guard, stay alert, the Bible tells us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Watch, for, watch, out, um, watch out for your great enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your Christian brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kind of suffering. Joseph is innocently, thro innocently thrown into prison, but again, rises to the top and uh, becomes uh, 
head of the prison. Joseph was placed in charge of all those in the prison. He finally interprets the dreams of uh, the Egyptian pharaoh and becomes second in command. During his, the mighty famine, his brothers come to Egypt. Joseph recognizes his brothers, and after a brief testing uh, to see if their hearts had changed, shows them mercy. Joseph could have dealt with this bitterness, being thrown into a pit, being thrown into prison and slavery. But Joseph stayed strong and kept the faith in the Lord. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. Additionally, when faced with temptation, Joseph kept his purity and stayed faithful knowing that his choice would have great consequences, imprisonment, possibly death. But he simply trusted God more. Those who didn't finish strong reference uh, King David. King David was, he was a sprinter. Great start out of the chalks. He was appointed by God to be the true king of Israel. 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Early triumphs, the defeat of Goliath, leading the Israelites into battle after battle and winning and expanding the territories of Israel. God abundantly blessed the people of Israel. However, often the case with their, uh, early success in individuals is losing focus through temptation, pride, and lust. Instead of giving God the glory, man becomes inwardly focused and relies on himself. Here are two big examples of sin, uh, sin, uh, sin of David. In the First Chronicles 21, verse 1, he, he does the census, which brings the pestilence. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to, to number Israel. And also in Second Samuel, uh, Samuel 24, 1 through 25, the census is taken. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Verse 10, Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And indeed he had. God's judgment for David for taking the census was the death of 70,000 Israelite men from Dan to Beersheba. As the angel of the Lord, if you remember this, approached the city of Jerusalem, the Lord relented and called off the calamity, stopped, stopped the killing. Also, we see the David's sin, we have lust. In 2 Samuel 11, we have Bathsheba. David was faced with lustful desires when he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop. He wound up laying with Bathsheba and she conceived. The sin had profound implication, the first of which was the death of the, uh, Uriah the Hittite, her Bathsheba's husband. Additionally, David lost his firstborn with Bathsheba. His daughter, was, Tamar, was raped. And then he had one of his sons uh, uh, uprising against him. So he continuously, the rest of his life, had difficulty in his household. Others that you can think of that didn't finish strong was King Solomon and his numerous and pagan wives became a distraction as well as Samson. In the Christian life, it's not how we start that matter. Verse 25, the crown, and we'll also talk about the Bema seat. Athletes do all the training and dieting for the hopes of winning a perishable wreath. We run the race for an imperishable crown. 
In, in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Paul's talking to Timothy. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So I say to you, I'm not really into crowns. Well, Scripture talks about a minimum of at least five crowns. There's possibly more. Perhaps in verse 25, when Paul's talking about the crowns, maybe he's referencing in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the star, like the expanse of the heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. James talks about the crown for those who lead people into the kingdom. Next slide. In Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 40 through 44, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and one glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star to star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So some stars shine bright. Others, not as much. Some you can barely see. Everyone in heaven is totally happy, completely happy. Everyone is happy, but your function and your capacity to enjoy heaven is differently linked to the crowns that you win. For example, when I was in fifth grade, my mom probably doesn't remember this, but um, when I was in fifth grade, I got the, the honor of being a road guard. So... This was something that the, the teachers would pick one student and the class would pick. It was such an honor for me. I was so proud and happy to get this. But I got to wear a reflective vest. I got a pole. I got to stop adults in their vehicles from, from passing. I mean, I could just drop that down. I didn't care how fast you're going. And then I would let the, the kids come, you know, across the street, the teachers and, uh, and, and the kids as they would come in. So it was a big honor for me. I was really happy, thrilled with that, that job. But now... I'm much older in life, and the thought of getting the job of road guard uh, at my elementary school is not very appealing. I have a bigger capacity to do more. Jesus teaches us that some will receive 10 cities, some will receive five cities, some will be road guards, I added that part, and some will just make it by fire. But, we, but again, we're all happy. Our crowns determine what we'll be doing in eternity. What if you really believe that? What would change in how you deal with those who don't know Christ? Perhaps embolden you to witness. Don't bury your talents and waste your time and resources. Now I'll talk about the Bema seat. So where do I get these rewards? Well, it's called the Bema seat. So real quick review there are, how many judgments are there? So I was watching a thing with Amir Safadi, and he talked about the three. 
So you have the Bema Seat of Christ in Romans 14, 10, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. You have the sheep, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And then you have the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. That occurs at the millennium, the final judgment of mankind. So what is this Bema Seat? Well, John chapter 19, verse 13 gives us an example. The Bema Seat is actually a Greek word. It's the judgment seat of Christ. It is a public or private platform. The Bema Seat is a tribunal for awards, rewards, excuse me. In large Olympic areas, there was an elevated seat on which the judge of the, uh, judge of the contest sat. After the contest was over, the competitors, successful competitors would assemble before the Likewise, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judicial bench. Christian life is a race, and the divine umpire is Jesus Christ. Where is this bema seat? It's in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Romans 14.10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So how, will I get, how do I get there? Only the rapture of the church can the body be changed and be raised up to heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 explains how this works. So once you are saved, then the question is, what did you do with what God gave you? The talents, the time, the resources. We talked about the parable of the, the talents. It also is talked about in Luke 19. What have you done with these is the entire point of the Bema Seat. What does the Bible tell us about the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ? That building materials will be revealed by fire. Some will suffer loss. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but listen, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. So what do we know about the rewards in the Bema Seat? The rewards are proportional to faithfulness, they show in life, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. We have different degrees of rewards in Luke 19, talking about the talents. Knowing today what the Bema Seed in heaven is like causes us to live faithful and fruitful lives. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we will have confidence and not shrink away. In 2 John 1, through eight, uh, verse 8, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Be careful not to lose your reward. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, I am coming quickly, hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take, uh, will take, will take your uh, crown. We know it's a position of honor. Matthew 10, 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And we know that gifts will be received. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen or ear has heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. 
So summary, when will this happen? It happens after the rapture. Bodies are, will be resurrected and changed. We'll meet the Lord in the air, gathered together for the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards for the faithful service. Remember, no condemnation. Rewards will consist of crowns to believers based on our faithful service to him. Rewards will be proportionate to our faithfulness. So how does sin negatively affect us in this? Sin and indifference in this life rob us of our present desire for serving the Lord. That, it, that in turn means a loss of rewards because we will not have used our time for his glory. Sin and indifference result in a loss in our lives because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin and indifference cause us to pass up opportunities for service which would otherwise perform and be rewarded for. We run this race to win. The believer needs to be active, full of the Holy Spirit, and eager to please God. Whatever you do, do for the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, do your work, heavenly as for the Lord, rather for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, which is your spiritual service of worship. So here are some uh, basically encouraging verses for finishing strong. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, truth. In James 1, 12, blessed is the one who preserves under trial because having good, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In Philippians 3, 14, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling. So I'll leave you with a, with a story of three men back in 1945. These were three evangelists. Billy Graham, who was 27, Chuck Templeton, and Bourne uh, Clifford. Each man would pack the auditoriums across the United States with tens and thousands. They were the who's who uh, back in 1945. How come out of those three names that I mentioned, you probably only know one of them, Billy Graham? Just five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio television commentator and a newspaper columnist. Templeton had decided he was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the term. By 1950, he no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. By 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, and his health. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him in. At the age of 35, uh, the once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown hotel outside Amarillo. So we'll get the uh, praise team to come forward. The last thing I'd like to read from you is a, a poem from an unknown author. Defeat. He lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense in running anymore. Three strikes. Three strikes. I'm out. Why try? The will to rise had disappeared. All hope had fled away. So far beyond. So error prone. Closer all the way. I've lost. So what's the use? He thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, 
who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded loud, low. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here, so get up and win the race. With barred will, get up, he said. You haven't lost at all. For winning is not more than this, to rise each time you fall. So up he rose to win once more, and with a new commit, he resolved, win or lose, at least he didn't quit. He wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran as though to win. Three times he fallen stumbling, three times he rose again. Too far to hope to win, he still ran till the end. They cheered the winning runner as he crossed first place, head high, proud, and happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the falling youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unapproved, you would have thought he won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won. His father said, you rose each time you fell. And now when things, I don't know why I'm getting emotional on this. <laughs> so now when things seem dark and hard and the race difficult to face, the memory of that uh, little boy helps me in my race. For all of life is like the race with ups and downs and all. All we have to do to win is rise each time we fall. Quit, give up, you're beaten. They still shout in my face, but another voice within me says, get up and win the race. So I'll finish tonight by saying that life is a race, but we have some people who are not even in the race, the people that don't believe in Christ. And the bigger travesty is the people who think that they're in the race and are not. There's many people who will die and stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart me for I do not know you. So if you're one of those people who doesn't know the Lord, I ask that you come up. And if you're a person who's in this race, but maybe you're struggling, maybe you've fallen down, you got knocked down, or maybe you're behind the pack, that's okay. I ask that you come forward and you can pray. And, and the, thing, the, the thing about this sermon is even if you're a tremendous athlete and you're, you're doing really, really well, you can always improve um, in your race.